The Start On Demand. demand. Greg Mackling with you along with Loren McNabb. Brett McGarry is off on holidays this week. And Loren, I'm going to guess that Brett is not in Florida. I'm going to guess that he's not anywhere but a golf course, to be honest with you. He's got a beautiful, for the most part, once we get through today, I think it's going to be a pretty decent week. But no, who... You can't technically get to the States right now. You're not supposed to go to Florida. But would you go if you could right now? I don't think I would. Disney World would love you to come. They're uh, throwing open the doors. They opened on Saturday. Lots of people shaking their heads at that one. But there were people there. We'll ask our friends uh, Kelly Moore, Jeff Braun, Jeff Forche. Would you go for free if you could? Right now, if that was an option, and I suspect that uh, the answer for a lot of them would be no. What would it be for you, Loren? Let's let's play some spoilers here. Uh, okay, so is Disney World in Florida the only option? I could do Disneyland Paris, maybe, or nope, one of nope, the other. Nope. Disney World in Florida is your only option. <laughs> My only option, though. No, I, I can't even. We were just having this conversation on the weekend about you know that border and the situation in the States and what's happening there with the cases of, of COVID and, and just exploding in Florida. And so I just think it's going to be, I, I, I wonder how long it's going to be, be before any of us even get to Grand Forks, let alone consider making a trek south like that. So would I go if it was for free? Oh, I'm still on the fence. I do like free stuff. <laughs> I, you, got, I, I got 30 minutes to figure this okay, out. Okay, you figure it out. You figure it out. Uh, you could have gone to Dickinson, North Dakota. Once again, you really couldn't, but uh, Great White did a free concert in Dickinson on the weekend, and lots of people upset about that. So uh, COVID-19, unfortunately, not slipping from the headlines. Today, we're going to take a look at uh, an issue closer to home. I've noticed this over the last several days. Uh, was lucky enough to get out on the boat. Uh, my father-in-law uh, took uh, the boys and I up to uh, Otter Falls on Friday and uh, pulled the boys around on a tube for a little bit. Uh, there, you can't launch your boat inside the city of Winnipeg right now. The river's high again. The Forks walkways are underwater one more time. There's no, All the boat launches uh, along the Red River are closed right now. And as you drive across the floodway... It's about as dry as it can be. So conversation about riverbank erosion, and I want to bring into the mix the whole idea, of, is it time to look at the floodway to regulate the, the river levels inside the city of Winnipeg all year round? To use it as a means to just keep the levels lower, regardless of the flood threat? Correct. That's, yeah, to, keep that them cons- he- to keep them consistent so that we can get the most out of our rivers in the summertime because they are an outstanding recreational and an underdeveloped and underused, in my opinion, business and tourism opportunity. Yeah, and the problem with the levels that we get on the red and as well with the Assiniboine is that the access to all the things we have. So not only are those high levels of water incredibly damaging to the banks and and we lose inches, if not feet, on certain property every single year to riverbank erosion, but then the riverbanks aren't accessible. And so you have, you know, there's other major cities that have used their rivers, as you say, as a tourist attraction where there's shops and restaurants and all sorts of things down there and cycling paths and rollerblading and running. And we don't have access to any of that because of the ways way our river levels fluctuate throughout the year and so it's it's a it's a good question i don't know how people would feel outside the floodway about it being used to that extent given the damage some of the people see every year when that floodway is used i know it's always 
the idea that you sacrifice for the greater good. Way more people benefit inside the city when the floodway is operated. But it, 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 there are questions about what we're doing there and whether or not we can do better by our banks, Greg. Well, we'll discuss that throughout the day, a variety of uh, conversations, interviews, and reports on the health of our river banks. And uh, speaking of health, hockey's back starting today. Winnipeg Jets will be on the ice in about an hour and 30 minutes as uh, training camp in July gets underway. Yeah, um, you can... You can hear all about it and see pictures about it in the news. You won't be able to go to any of those camps like you might have in the past. It used to be a fun time of year, right? In September, you might hit up some of those practices at uh, the Ice Plex, or you might even get down to the rink downtown and see a few of them. Nope, it's all closed to the public, but we will be talking about it extensively because, boy, how many months of lead-up to this has there been? Pretty much since the season shut down, the question has been, when will the season start back up? And mm-hmm. so we have some more details on that, Greg, but we also... Kind of curious what people think. Are you excited about finally getting to watch some hockey in the middle of summer? Yeah, no, fair enough. And uh, I'm still on the fence. I'm excited with the notion, the prospect of hockey returning. uh, But until they actually get on the ice and play a game, I'm skeptical. Uh, quite frankly, as whether or not it's going to be able to happen. The the fact that one of the hub cities is Edmonton, I guess, makes me feel better. The fact that the other hub city is Toronto, I don't know, beats any uh, city pretty much in the United States right now, but it's still not, uh, you know, it's not great. still a hot spot. The most magical place on earth has reopened after nearly four months with new rules in place to help prevent the spread of COVID-19. Walt Disney World's Magic Kingdom and Animal Kingdom reopened on Sunday. Actually, it opened on Saturday. Welcome home. Welcome home. Welcome home. Welcome home. Welcome home. Welcome home, everyone. Welcome, citizens. So that's audio from Disney's Welcome Back video. Bunch of employees in PPE smiling and waving. The reopening comes as a huge surge of Floridians have tested positive for the new coronavirus, bless you, in recent weeks. Yesterday, over 15,000 cases were reported in that state, according to state statistics. Many are shaking their heads in disbelief that Disney has reopened in the midst of Florida's worst weekend for COVID-19. And while the internet did its thing yesterday and had some fun with that spot. Stay at home. Stay at home. Stay at home. Stay at home. Stay at home! Stay at home, everyone! We wish we could stay home! I'm in danger! This isn't the home you're looking for. So that has us asking Loren McNabb, Kelly Moore, Jeff Forche, Jeff Braun, would you go to Disney World this week? All expenses paid. Why don't we start with you, Jeff Braun? Uh, no, I would not. Not because of the Disney World of all, but of course because of the Florida of it all. If it was, if it was in you know, like in Gimli or something, then I would definitely go. If it was in Manitoba, but no, no, I, you couldn't pay me right now to set foot in Florida. Period. How about you, Kelly? Do you like to save uh, a buck here and there? Uh, no, but uh, as most Winnipeggers, if it's free, I'll take three. But uh, not in this particular instance. Uh, 
Not with the way it's been surging, and that's not nearly enough of a bubble environment for uh, me to get enthusiastic about going there. And, and I've never been to Disney World before. It is a place I would like to go at some point, but not right now. Yeah, it's a fantastic place to go. I've been to Disney in California, never to Florida. Forte, you been? Yes, I've been to uh, Disney World in Florida. It's beautiful. It's awesome, but I wouldn't go right now. Okay, so uh, Loren, are you going to make it unanimous? If I can be directly flown there in a private jet, no, with the fem- you didn't you didn't say how I get there. You didn't. That's the part. And then I can sort of have some one of those like a transponder where I pod down into the park, mm-hmm. and the oh, lineups. I can Lord. pick three rides. I might consider it, but overall, like I don't care what they put in place there. They've got hand sanitizers at the gates. If you don't wear a mask, you can't get in. They're trying to do you know physical distancing, but come on, we know that's not going to happen. You can't even walk down the street here without having some space issues, let alone in a massive park like that. So no. unless all my criteria for a safe delivery to and from the park are met, no, the okay. answer would be no. Well, I saw an amusement park expert who was there on opening day on Saturday, and she said that the setup for the lines was very impressive because that's really the only thing you have to complain about, in my opinion, when you go to Disney is the lineups. And so they've got things spaced out, but it's when you, she suggested that when you reach, uh, Kelly, an unexpected spot where you bump into people, that's where people were having the, the most issues. And I think that's still, even with all the experience we have and the way the the different stores are laid out and trying to accommodate everyone and, and direct you a certain way, I think that's when I still have my biggest problem is is when you meet someone one-on-one in a hallway and you don't know which which side to take it's that uh, song and dance thing yeah i think i think it's the communication thing that you have to do you know you kind of say okay i'll i'll go this way you go that way and i I know even uh, in the stores uh still having to remember to look down okay am i you know, am I on a one-way street here? <laughs> mm-hmm. Why? Why do I feel like a fish swimming upstream? But uh, you know, and at a place like Disney World, I mean, how are you going to be able to possibly social distance when, you know, at the best of times, people are crowded to get on those rides? Can you imagine how long a line would look if you were spaced six feet apart? Yeah, no kidding, no kidding. I, I do wonder, though, if there'll be people because, you know, according to CNN's travel site, there's no deals to be had. Like, you know, there's a lot of people assuming, you know, well, maybe you'll get a good deal at the park if you go now because of COVID. So ticket prices are the same. Hotel prices in and around Orlando are the same, particularly close to Disney World. But because you might have fewer people, there might be those who are attracted to the idea that the, the lines will be shorter. Yep. There'll be fewer people in the park. Um, the, the thin crowd, you know, that might appeal to you. That, that might be your reason to go. Yeah, I just don't know if I could get over the idea of being right in the middle of that hot spot. Jeff, what would it take for you to to go to something like that? Where, where's the comfort level? I know Disney's not opening in Gimli anytime soon. So, what would it take? <laughs> uh, it would just uh, a huge, huge decrease in the number of cases daily coming out of that state for sure. And are they like wiping down the rides after each turn and that sort of thing? I think that's a great question. I'll have to because dig into that. I don't know if they even, are or not. If they had fewer people, it would still the line might take just as long if they got to you know wipe down the handlebars of all the roller coasters after each guy's done on it. I don't know. So, if, so if, I think this opens up the the question as well. How long should the border be closed between Canada and the U.S., Jeff? Porche? Uh, up until uh, I don't know. I, I it's a hard question because 
like right now the, the cases, especially in Florida, are just through the roof. I it's going to have to for me keep the borders. Yeah, and closed. they're not they're not alone either. No, uh, they're you know, not. There are other states that uh, Arizona. It's been a little bit of a train wreck lately, and I think Texas has finally had to rebatten down the hatches as well. But you know, Greg, to answer your question about the border, I I think that. Uh, uh, the way that uh, Canada has handled this thing, that border won't get reopened until they are convinced that it is in the best interest of Canadian citizens to do so. What do you think, McNabb? When's that magic number? Like, if you had to make a yeah. prediction. You're not seeing it this year. Wow. Yeah, that's my that's my guess, and that's just an, obviously it's just an opinion here, but it has nothing to do with cases in, in North Dakota or or Minnesota. It's about all those southern states that are struggling. You've got tons of snowbirds that go back and forth. At the very least, you won't see it uh, until later in the fall, and I'm thinking November. I, it just seems to me that not just because of the cases, but because of all you went through all this trouble to close it and to keep things contained, we we closed it far quicker than we're going to reopen it. What do you think, uh, Braun, if you're making a prediction, when does that Canada-U.S. border open? Yeah, no, I agree with Loren. I don't see it happening in 2020 whatsoever. It is Monday morning. It's the start. Mackling and McNabb with you. McGarry back next Monday. Thanks for spending some time with us. As you get your work week started, at least the traditional work week for everybody who worked over the weekend. Maybe you're at the end of your your string of shifts. Thanks very much for doing the things that you do. Frontline workers, of course, uh, very much at the forefront of our minds over the last several months uh, during COVID-19. So a shout out to all our frontline workers. And uh, Loren, uh, out west uh, in uh, part of the country, part of the province, it's very special to us. It's been a punishing two weeks since a punishing storm dropped a record levels of rain on western Manitoba, and that's where we start this hour. Yeah, and for many living in Rapid City or Rivers or Minnedosa, that cleanup, of course, it, it continues to this day. And, and we were telling you after that storm, first we were talking about the, just the amounts of water that flowed through there, so some 200 millimeters in some parts, uh, close to a foot in some people's estimates, just a just a insane amount of water. And so first, that was the first staggering thing. And then there was the look at the damage and, and the people hardest hit by the flooding and the idea that they may not have the right kind of insurance to cover this. And even if they did, it might not cover their losses. And so there's homes that have been complete write-offs, crops that have been wiped out, basements destroyed, and of course, businesses who are just still wondering how they're going to recover and if any financial help is on the way. That's where our next guest comes in. After making some phone calls to the province, Deanna Dupuy learned a few things about the Disaster Financial Aid Program. And so she's now trying to assist others pass that knowledge on to friends and neighbours in the Minidosa area. And Deanna joins us now. Good morning. Good morning. Before we get into the idea of the struggle for financial assistance, Deanna, just tell us a bit about what you were hearing or seeing from friends and neighbours when it comes to how bad some of this damage is. Oh, it's been like nothing our town has ever seen. Um, basically, some people woke up after that first storm to a river flowing down Main Street. So we've had so many houses destroyed, completely condemned. Like you said, bases, basements full of water, people having to completely gut them. Um, businesses, super hard hit. Like you said, after COVID, <laughs> you know, it's just been so, so hard for so many people. 
So, Deanna, a lot of us are under the impression, I think, that insurance will help us out in a time like this. What, what are you learning about insurance uh, for your friends, family, and maybe even yourself? Well, and that's just what we've been hearing is this lack of insurance that people have for overland flooding. So that started to pop out fairly soon after the storms came through. And uh, just hearing about my neighbours, you know, after they contacted their insurance provider and finding out that they had no coverage and, I mean, after people are losing their homes, just devastating news that um, they wouldn't have have this coverage. So um, I had started to right away research and read up on different programs available and came across this disaster financial assistance program. So looking on the government's website, Deanna, this program is available for, you know, obviously a natural disaster. It's not for COVID or things like that. It's for when there's no. a, a disaster that it's out of the control of anyone. And the programs are established after they evaluate what's going on, we had asked the province and the infrastructure ministers at the start of this, is any money coming to Western Manitoba or other communities that have been hit by flooding this year? And the answer was not yet. So how does this program work in terms of if I'm if I'm at home listening to this in Minnedosa or Rivers now, do I have to apply or wait for the government to come to me? You have to apply. And yeah, I talked to some contact numbers for the program and the biggest message to pass on is if, even if you're minimally affected, you know, carpet's wet, you had to take them out, you need to apply to this program to get it activated. So, I mean, people are so giving in our town that they're worried that, you know, if I apply for this, am I taking it away from people who really need it? No, we need the numbers because if we don't have people applying, we won't have anything available for anyone. So that's um, the reasoning behind. We're setting up a small center running this week from 9 to 11 a.m. And I'm going, and other people are going to, around to homes um, affected. It's very quick and easy. It's an online process that takes you know, a couple minutes to, to uh, apply. And hopefully those numbers then will get the government to declare this as a disaster. Deanna, if I'm re- reading between the lines correctly, correctly here, it sounds as though this is sort of a critical mass situation. It has to be a large enough of a disaster affecting enough people in order for the province to get involved and implement this program. Is that, is that a fair assessment? That's absolutely correct, yeah. Yeah. So how are you have- go-, go ahead, Loren. Well, I was going to say, uh, in terms of do we know what number it is, or is it a dollar amount? Is it a number of people that apply, or if you get to a threshold believe- of X dollars? Well, I believe from what the people I've spoken to, it's a numbers amount right now. Um, so that's all I'm shooting for. I'm just, the last week and this coming week, um, you know, in the future, I'm just trying to talk to as many people as I can in our town, in our area, and, and just getting them to apply. So hopefully, you know, and especially if you do the online application um, from the people I'm talking to, they're saying they're trying to get those applications processed in the next 24 hours after application. So um, I'm thinking, you know, if a lot of people do that, the government will wake up and go, whoa, what's happened out here? So, Deanna, one more time before we let you go, can you give out the website and also just one more time exactly what you're trying to do sort of on a face-to-face, one-to-one basis here to make people aware of this? I know we have lots of listeners in Western Manitoba. Yeah, basically, if you go online to end and go to Disaster Financial Assistance Program Manitoba, the application pops up right away. It's a one-page application. It just requires some basic information and a few details to get the process going. So get onto that site, um, sign up, even if you've been minimally affected, and of course, if you've been mutually affected as well, it applies to residences, businesses, farms, um, and hopefully that will help everybody uh, get that financial assistance. Greg, can I make one last point here? Because, Deanna, the greatest thing about small towns in Mendoza is mine. 
is the help that you're giving. And this isn't, this is personal to you, but not because you've had damage. That's correct, right? You just want to help out your neighbors who've been hurt? Yes, I was so lucky to not have damage. And right away, both my husband and I were like, how can we help? And the amazing thing about Minidosa is the community members, they're just amazing. Um, people have been working 24-7, just volunteering. Like the spirit and heart everybody has out there is is awesome. So, I mean, I know we will get through it, but we need support to get through it. Um, and hopefully the Manitoba government sees this as the disaster it was. And um, our, our recovery is going to be long, but we will get there. So. Amazing neighbors. That's what Manitoba's all about. Deanna Dupuis, thank you for this. And uh, give our love to everyone out in the Westman and in Minidosa in particular, if you would. Thank you so much. It isn't often that sports stories are the top stories of the day, but today is one of those days. The Washington franchise, the National Football League, is expected to announce that it will, in fact, be changing its nickname, and the National Hockey League is set to take center stage beginning August long weekend. But before play-in series can take place, getting back on the ice and getting reacquainted with teammates, Loren is on the agenda. And of course, the Winnipeg Jets are ready to get back to work as their training camps get underway. Training camps right across the league getting underway today. And uh, they hit the ice, I think, about 20 minutes ago at the Iceplex as an official group. And of course, there'll be lots of us wondering what things look like, how the players look like, because fans aren't allowed to go to the camps this year or watch any of it. But we do have reporters there. And of course... We have our own Leah Hextall, who is a, both a hockey analyst, play-by-play commentator, and also our host of Hextall on Hockey, which, by the way, returns starting this week. You can hear her great analysis every Tuesday and Thursday, 7.55, 10.55, 2.55, and 4.55. Leah joins us now. Good morning. Good morning, Loran and Greg. How is everyone doing today on what is our summer training camp day? Yeah, it's an unusual day to be talking about this in July, Leah, but I think they're safe to say there are people who are excited for this return. What jumps out to you when we look at the fact that not only is training camp underway, but we saw the roster Sunday night about who's in and who's out? What jumps out to me, Loran, is the fact that the Winnipeg Jets have options. All of their roster players are back and available, except for Brian Little, who we know suffered the trauma after taking the Nikolai Ehlers shot to the head in the season. Everyone is accounted for, including Mark Letestu. Let's remember, he was received to them as an off-season signing last year, only played seven games in October before being diagnosed with a heart virus, had just been cleared to skate before the season went on pause. He will be skating. You see a lot of the Jets defensemen, including Sammy Miku and Carl Dahlstrom, who had been having those little banged up. Dahlstrom was on the IR for the hand injury. They are back skating. So you have a healthy group, including major players such as Shifley, Wheeler, Connor, who have had this time now, which has been the equivalent of a full off season to recover and recruit from some little injuries, bumps and bruises to have them completely healthy. Now, this isn't an advantage because their qualifying round opponent, the Calgary Flames, have had the same amount of time. But it is options for Paul Maurice, which is exciting for the Jets. Yeah, strength against strength. That's what I'm liking about the prospect of these playoffs, Leah. Just the idea that all teams will be healthy and it might be as difficult a Stanley Cup to win this year as there's ever been. Uh, Just really quick before we uh, talk a little bit about some of the options Paul Maurice has, uh, this idea that uh, you mentioned the fact that uh, the training camp rosters and the training groups were released last night. Matthew Perot skating with group number two. Should we read anything into that? 
I really don't think so. I've never been one of these people who look at training camp in, at any time, except, you know, considering we have these circumstances that are unreal right now. But when you look at training camp, you have to understand that sometimes what they also do is they take veteran players and they put them on a group that doesn't have as many veterans. There's a lot of Manitoba Moose players, over a handful of Manitoba Moose players in the mix at this camp. So they may be looking at the fact that they need a little bit more experience at that training camp group. So I really wouldn't read too much into that at this time. So then let's talk about the options that you mentioned that the Jets have. They have options. And so what are the ones, the tough choices that might have to be made for Coach Paul Maurice in the next uh, few days and weeks? Well, the training camp roster has 33 players on it right now. That's 18 forwards, 12 defensemen, and three goaltenders. The Winnipeg Jets and all teams can only take 31 players into secure zone when they move to their bubble city. So that means, you know, I'm great at math here. They're going to have to get rid of two players. I don't expect any of the goaltenders to be removed from this roster. You're going to see Loren Grisois, Connor Hellebuck, and Eric Comrie for sure because you need those three goalies. I'm actually surprised maybe they wouldn't have one extra goalie, but it might not be available to them. So it's going to come from the skaters at front. And it's going to be a great opportunity for those Moose players I reference. You see players like Jansen Harkins and Logan Shaw who split time last season, especially Harkins who really showed well. I was very impressed with him last season. David Gustafson also split time. He's also a centerman. Centers are always very taxed in the playoffs. So if they're looking to go forward in depth, these players have a real opportunity of making this training camp roster and moving to the secure zone and what an unprecedented experience for these young players to come in as it will be for all the players when they move to the secure zone and you have to uh, have to think and I would expect uh, Pascal Vincent the head coach of the Mountain Moose he will be with the Jets at training camp to help Paul likely with many of these Moose decisions to give him a little bit more insight but also because let's remember the Jets are down an assistant coach. Todd Woodcroft has moved on. He became the head coach of the University of Vermont. So he's not available to that coaching staff, which puts more work on them. Leah Hextall, of course, Hextall and Hockey resumes tomorrow, 7.55. We'll have it for you here on the start, 10.55 a.m., 2.55 p.m. and 4.55 p.m. Leah, I hope we can talk an awful lot over the next several weeks. I've still got my fingers crossed because I'm not I'm not absolutely convinced we're going to see hockey August long weekend. I hope I'm proven wrong. We always appreciate your time and your terrific insight. Thanks so much, Greg and Loren. And yes, Greg, there's going to be a little bit of lady luck that is needed to get this done. <laughs> no question about it. Uh, we will uh, we will keep an eye on it because I, I think, Loren, people are ready for more senses of normalcy. And I think hockey, regardless of the fact that it's uh, August long weekend or not, would provide just a tiny bit of that. Yeah, I, I, you know, there's been a lot to, to say and debate over whether or not they should return or will return. But if they get there, you're going to have people watching. There'll be people excited to, to have their hockey in August. And I think I'll be one of them. I want to play for you the audio from a video which caught my attention on Friday. I've shared it to my Twitter account, G-M-A-C-K-W-P-G, at G-Mac Winnipeg. It is from the state of Victoria in Australia. It is a video spot which vividly exhibits the number of people an interview subject believes is an acceptable number of deaths on the roads of that part of the world. Take a listen. So last year, 213 people died on our roads. What do you think would be a more acceptable number? Um, acceptable? 70, maybe. Probably 70. Can you send 70? 
Actually, this is what 70 people looks like. So this is sort of a man-on-the-street interview style, and they've asked him to give the interviewer, the mock interviewer, an idea of how many people would be acceptable in his mind. They'd had 214 deaths in that part of the world. He says 70 and 70 family members walk around the corner and down this back alley toward him. I don't know if it's staged, Loren, or if it's something that was, uh, you know, subversively created. Either way, I think it's incredibly impactful. Is that how many is is acceptable? And it's quite the question when you put it that way. They, they're talking about road deaths in Australia being particularly bad. We know road fatalities in Manitoba this year are up compared to last year. Speeding and dangerous driving and careless driving, all sorts of things up. And so it's bringing us back to that conversation that we keep having around the movement called Vision Zero, where that is the goal. Zero pedestrian and cyclist deaths. Our next guest is an architectural intern, and she also hosts the Plain Cycle podcast, and we're pleased to welcome on Erin Riediger right now. Good morning, Erin. Good morning. Thanks for having me. And you know what, Erin, while we're just live on the air, say your last name for me again, because I don't think I did that quite right. Oh, that's okay. It's Riediger. Riediger. Well, I was close. Well, thank you, Erin, yeah, for the time. I want to... I want to get that right first because it's important to include your name in this conversation because you're a cyclist, you have the podcast, and and before we get into your theories on zero pedestrian and cyclist death, why is it important for you to promote the use of bicycles in Winnipeg and really right around the country? Um, yeah, I promote cycling as a, as a way of getting around, um, and I promote everyday cycling. So I want people to see that it can be more than a recreation and sport activity, but it can actually be a viable way to get from point A to point B. It can be easy, it can be fun, and um, and it can be safe if we design our roads uh, correctly. Mm, can, I think, is the <laughs> operative word in that sentence, Aaron, because uh, my boys are starting to get out to, and use their bicycles more. I'm, uh, we are blessed in my corner of the city to have some excellent uh, bicycle infrastructure, but it's still disjointed. It doesn't necessarily connect the places uh, that we would want to go, and some of them are pretty important places in our city. I think that's a common complaint about our network uh, of active transportation infrastructure structure. Yeah, I think definitely the the con- connectivity. So that that plays into the to the safety. Um, so people feel the most safe when they are separated from cars and they have um, a separated protected bike path. But when it's disjointed, there are times where you either have to make a choice to go into traffic and feel less safe or maybe go up onto the sidewalk and and that's not quite um, with the rules and when you make that cho- when you have those um, have to make those choices it actually deters a lot of people from trying cycling because they just don't feel safe so it keeps our mode share numbers down and it actually keeps our um, our accident numbers and collision numbers with cyclists and pedestrians up because there's um, not a safe place for cyclists and pedestrians to use the roads even if we had some of those safe places or created more of them in terms of pl- 
paths dedicated just for cyclists or pedestrians. And then, of course, roads just for cars there. And there's still a mental question, I think, that drivers need to get over and maybe even some cyclists. But the idea that it's not all about you and it's not Mm -hmm. all about getting there as quickly as possible, because I know there's there's a, a constant and ongoing battle between drivers and cyclists in this city who kind of get annoyed with one another and aren't willing to really give on this one. Yeah, well, good conditions for cyclists are actually good conditions for drivers. So if you're creating space for different types of modes of transportation, it becomes better for everything, everyone. So a lot of um, drivers, and I myself have been included in this in the past, can get frustrated with cyclists if they're kind of, you know, if they cut in front of you or you just feel like nervous around them, you're not sure where they're going to go and they're unpredictable. So um, the fact that that we're, we have in the past treated cyclists like cars is part of the problem. So if everybody has their own um, dedicated space that's safe, then um, then it's better for driving and easier for driving. And also there'll be less drivers on the road. So the conditions for drivers are even better because there'll be more people cycling if it's safe and easy. I want to ask you a question about uh, pedestrian safety and the safety of our overall neighborhoods. But I want to point out a tweet that our colleague, Brett McGarry, who's on holidays this week, uh, put out on on the weekend. (laughs) I think you saw it. And it says, Dear Cyclists, if you expect me and my car to share the road with you, I expect you to follow the same rules of the road. And uh, all capitals, Brett says, stop signs are not suggestions. I think that's a frustration of a lot of people who drive a vehicle. And as you mentioned, those very same people might, in fact, ride a bicycle from time to time. Yeah. um, So the thing with the stop signs is um, you have to think about cyclists as you are quite different from a car. So first of all, if, if a cyclist, I mean, they should always at least sort of pause and roll through a stop sign. They're supposed to stop. But the thing with stopping at a stop sign is that um, if you're on a on a bicycle, you lose momentum. So it actually becomes a little bit less safe because you're you have to completely stop and then look around and then you have to start going again. And and um, for a car actually behind you, it, it is quite frustrating because you're not going. You're kind of like they don't know what you're doing. Some cars try to wave you through. So in um, in some places, there's something called the Idaho stop, which started in Idaho. And um, basically, it's that you cyclists are legally allowed to roll through a stop. So you still pause and you give whoever came to the crossing the right of way first. But you don't have to complete, come to a complete stop. So you can keep your momentum. And it's actually safer for the cyclist in terms of, um, of balance and predictability. Um, so it actually makes it better uh, for everyone if that's, uh, if that's legal. In that case, then, they talked about changing the law. It wasn't just about changing the infrastructure era, and there was a law change that allowed for what you're arguing is a safer practice. So that's fascinating. I'll have to look into that. I hadn't heard of the Idaho stop. Before we mm-hmm. let you go, I, I wanted to ask about another component of safety, because you tweeted about this also over the weekend, about a section of active transportation infrastructure that you also felt was safe, unsafe, for a whole host of other reasons. It wasn't about the pavement or the curve. It was about the lighting and uh, your experience as a solo cyclist. Yeah, so um, when we're designing safe separated infrastructure, um, sometimes the, um, the, the designers will make a path that is actually so separated from the roadway, it's, 
it's leading you down something that isn't close to shops, it isn't close to housing, and it isn't close to the roadway. And although this might seem awesome because you can just like go on your bike, you're not close to any cars, it feels super safe. For a lot of people, it doesn't feel feel safe, myself included as a woman um, and other vulnerable people, because there's no sight lines to you. So I had an experience where, and it was actually still daylight out, but there's a blind corner around, um, around Pemina and Stafford where you can go to Harrow or you can go to South Osborne on the new BRT um, path. And um, someone jumped out at me and they had another person jump out after them and they were trying to wave me down to get me to slow down. And it was really scary. And like when you're designing infrastructure, you still have to think about sight lines and you still have to think about um, people feel safer around other people. So um, leading a bicycle path uh, down a down a route that isn't close to any other existing infrastructure can actually feel quite unsafe for a lot of people. Aaron, uh, thanks for sharing that story. Sorry you went through that. I'm glad you, you had the wherewithal to uh, be quick on your pedals, so to speak, and <laughs> realize you. that you were in a dangerous situation. Aaron Riediger joining us. And where can we find uh, your uh, your podcast, the uh, the bicycle, uh, the plane cycle podcast? Yeah, so the podcast is called Plain Bicycle, and it's available on most podcast platforms, so most notably uh, Spotify and um, and Apple Podcasts and Google Podcasts, but it's really available on any platform, and if you Google Plain Bicycle, you should be able to find it. Uh, real quick question. Can you do it in 20 seconds? Uh, okay. how, often, how often do you see cyclists using hand signals? One of our listeners wants to know. Oh, um, I see it pretty often. I kind of have weak hand signals <laughs> myself, but um, but I think most uh, most cyclists try to make cars aware of where they're going, especially when they're on the roads and not on the separated path. Aaron Riediger, thanks for this. Uh, hopefully you'll join us again sometime. We appreciate it. Thank you very much. The Winnipeg Jets, I, I don't know if they've been holidaying is that a word? Um, for the last four months, but they are back at it. Today, the Winnipeg Jets will begin their quest for the Stanley Cup Saturday, August 1st in Edmonton when they play the Calgary Flames. 9.30 p.m. start. Um, there are a few of those on the schedule. You might want to get used to those as they start and uh, they open their best of five play in round series against the Flames. So before we get, of course, to that play in round and game day, we need to get through training camp. As you said, it officially opened just over an hour ago, Greg. The first group was on the ice at 7.45, and then another group hit the ice. Uh, well, they hit it as we speak. And watching this all unfold is global sports reporter and anchor Russ Hobson. Good morning, Russ. Oh, this is my fault. There we go. Sorry, sorry, Russ. I didn't press the appropriate button to bring you on the air. Let's try that Good again. Good morning. There we are. <laughs> You know, Fine Monday it's, morning. It's a good Monday morning. A little gloomy out there, Russ, and we're maybe a bit rusty with some of our buttons as we try to bring you on. But uh, how are the players looking? Or we speak about rust uh, at typical training camps. Is this looking a little different to you as far as you're concerned and what you're seeing out there when they've had all this time off up till now? Yeah, I think it's going to be a, a little bit different than the usual. Obviously, it's a lot more controlled atmosphere this time around than the usual first day of training camp when you have Fan Fest and a thousand fans jammed in. Obviously, there's nothing like that here. Players are uh, through most of them through their uh, they're all through their first quarantine. They have another seven day quarantine where they're allowed to go both to the home 
and the rink. So uh, it's a totally different feel out here today. Of course, uh, the media, we had to get uh, temperature checks. Uh, um, there's no in-person interviews. Interviews will all be done uh, via Zoom. Uh, we in the media wear a mask, and I broke the ear loop off my mask after about half hour, so I'm going to be holding my mask on my face all day here as the Jets uh, finally kick off the Phase 3 and get back to playing some hockey. Well, yeah, and it's uh, going to be different for anybody who's there because the media typically gathers in, in close proximity to one another and uh, like to share notes and chit-chat about what's going on. Uh, with your eyes, uh, what have you seen so far? And, uh, you know, I know you can't uh, make any judgments based on uh, an hour on the ice, Russ, but is there a- any Russ there? And, um, and is uh, Paul Maurice uh, tipping his hand in terms of who's going to be playing together? Uh, well, I think we'll, we will see some lines. Uh, the way they separated, there's there's 33 players here today, uh, 30 skaters and three goalies. Uh, it'll be interesting to see the pace, of course, after uh, four and a half months off. That's that's the usual off season, right? So really, this is just a almost like an, a normal training camp in that way because they've had the four months off like they would have had uh, any other summer. Um, so they bro- they broke them down into two different groups here today. Uh, the top three lines, the top nine forwards, uh, are in the group that's on the ice right now that just stepped on the ice at nine o'clock. Uh, the fourth line and the uh, so-called bubble guys run at about seven forty-five. Uh, the media weren't actually allowed in until eight o'clock. That's when the, the temperature checks and stuff like that happen. So we're on the ice surface that's uh, overlooking the ice surface that's on um right now and they basically have only been on the ice a few minutes so they're ba- basically just uh, getting things going so it'll be interesting to see uh, who's playing with who uh will blake wheeler be back at center will be back on uh, mark shifley's wing that's one of the the, the big questions uh, of course there are, are a few guys that aren't here brian little uh he's still not ready to go after taking that slap shot off his ear uh, back in the fall uh billy hanela christian veseliner were also two guys that uh, were left off that list and only 31 players are allowed to go to Edmonton. So of the 33, there'll be two guys here that, uh, that won't make it uh, to the hub city. You know, you talked about how it's been really four months off, kind of a typical off season in some ways in terms of the length of time. But we're now going into what is a play-in round for the Jets and then hopefully the playoffs. And Andrew Kopp talked about the idea that technically when they left back in March, they're on a four-game winning streak. But is momentum all out the window now? It, it really is a fresh start. This is so not typical for heading into the playoffs because they're kind of all on an even playing field right now, Russ. Yeah, exactly. I think you're going to see two completely different mindsets. Teams like the Jets that were playing were one of the hottest teams in the league at the break. They're going to be saying, you know, this is the same season. We're just going to pick up where we left off. Where teams like uh, Chicago and Montreal that weren't having great seasons are going to try and take the approach that, hey, this is a brand new season. We get to start fresh. We get a best of five series to make the playoffs instead of playing 82 games. So I think you're going to see different teams kind of take different mental approaches uh of course, to a scenario that we've never really seen before. Well, as uh, Yogi Berra said, uh, sports is 90% mental, the other half is physical. And so this whole mentality thing, do the Jets have a little bit of an advantage in terms of not necessarily having the COVID-19 distraction that a lot of teams are going to have opening training camp, Russ, in what's essentially the safest major league city on the continent? I would think that would play a, a small role but they're going to be in their bubble and they're going to just be going back and forth from the rink into their home so i think they're going to try and shut all that stuff out so i'm not sure how much of a, a factor that's going to be for this two weeks because of course it, this is only two week camp and then they're off they're off to edmonton and they're going to be in the same hotel with everyone else so i'm, I'm sure there's a 
a certain factor when it comes mentally with the players that have maybe been in Florida and been in some of the bad places that are now in Winnipeg and maybe maybe feel a little more comfortable with their surroundings. Just 30 seconds left here, Ross, before we let you go. How does it work then? You mentioned two weeks to uh, of training camp and 31 of the 33 players get to go to Edmonton. So when does decisions have to be made by the coach? Uh, I'm assuming those decisions probably won't ha- won't come down to probably the day they leave or the day before they leave, uh, July 26th, I believe is the day they head for their hub city in Edmonton. I don't think uh, – and the fact is that they only have to really cut two players. There could be an injury in training camp. Those, those decisions could be made for them. So I think we'll just, uh, they'll probably just wait and see and what happens and see how the next few weeks unfolds and uh, whether or not they have to make those decisions or not. Um, they do have a number of moose players here too. So um, I, there, there are players coming here knowing that they, they, they probably aren't going to see any game action. Yeah, the, the players seeing a different side of Winnipeg that they don't always get an opportunity to see as well. Andrew Kopp mentioned that. Uh, the players not used to being able to come to the rink in shorts. Russ Hobson, thank you for this. We'll catch up with you throughout the week. Appreciate it. All right, Russ Hobson joining us from Iceplex. The Winnipeg Jets are on the ice as training camp opens in an anticipated, and I have to use that word anticipated because I think there are still a bunch of us, Loren, who are not convinced that uh, August 1st we'll see the Jets and the Flames face off in game one of their best of five play-in series. Yeah, a lot has to happen between now and then in terms of keeping numbers low, of having players not become infected and not having this all blow up in their face. But right now, at this very moment, Greg, aren't you a little bit excited hearing Russ talking about seeing the players on the ice and them going through the drills? It's nice just to see a practice would have been boring maybe six months ago. It's not boring now. I want to know if they're streaming it online. That's how excited I am. (laughs) I want to see these guys skating. And, of course, uh, just because my enthusiasm is tempered by a little bit of realism doesn't mean I'm not excited. I'm extremely excited at the prospect of seeing the National Hockey League back on the ice. Hey, thanks for listening to the Start Podcast. We are available on Apple Podcast, Google Podcast, wherever you find your favorite podcasts. Subscribe now and never miss an episode. And if you like what you hear, rate the show, tell us what you think, and hey, even tell a friend about the podcast. Be sure to follow us on Twitter and Instagram. Greg is at GMACWPG, that's G-M-A-C-K-W-P-G. I am at Brett McGarry, B-R-E-T-T-M-E-G-A-R-R-Y. And Loren on Twitter is at McNab on Global and on Instagram at McNab on C-J-O-B. Talk soon.